Watch your listeners, you're only tuning in to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, coming to you from old Cambridge Town. Over the next April shower, we'll put our noggins together and try and make 18 pence at part 14 of Twin Peaks The Return. We've got the sheriffs going down the doomy goods to Jack Rabbit screaming Alice, Gordon Cole has a sea bream about Monica, and Sarah's up to all sorts down the bathtub. If you reckon there's some particulars we ain't earwigged onto, why not do us a cheesy quaver and drop us an Auntie Nell on Twitter? All right. So that roughly translates as welcome to <laughs> Time for Jerry Pie and Coffee, part 14, with me, Eason. <laughs> and me, Bex. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. <laughs> I think we've done well. Um, yeah, we've been at Worldcon in Helsinki, Worldcon 75, which is the World Science Fiction Convention. So we actually have already put out a couple of mini episodes over the weekend uh, called Slices of Pie, which are interviews with uh, people who are really big fans of Twin Peaks and also fans of the Cherry Pie and Coffee podcast as well. So there's one episode already up featuring a slice of pie with Seth Manukin and a second one which features authors Neil Williamson and Chris Butler. So if you have the chance, they're both about an hour long each. Um, give them a listen too. But it's also meant that being at Worldcon, we've been a bit late getting this episode out. We're really sorry. Um, we should be back on schedule next week, I think. Um, but yeah, we got back and we actually watched part 14 late. It's the first one that we've missed the airing um, a bit live. Yeah. And we... What an episode to, to watch late as well. Yeah. <laughs> so it's... much happened. <laughs> it's one of those ones where, you know, Sod's Law dictates that you miss an episode and suddenly everything kicks into gear and it's a bit crazy. Um, but also, thank you for everyone uh, who didn't spoil it as well. So last yes. week it was obviously leaked uh, in Germany through Sky or something. Uh, thank you to everyone who kept that quiet. Um, certainly everyone who we follow wasn't leaking anything. And we're really sorry because lots of people... Uh, tagged us in various tweets after the episode went out um that was really great and it was really nice of you and we wished we could have gone through everything but also we didn't want to look at anything until we recorded the episode uh, just because it's kind of nice to do things fresh and we might start trawling back through that uh very soon yeah because we noticed there was a lot going on and when we were desperately not looking at anything on twitter at all during those kind of 24 hours where we couldn't watch the episode um, and eventually we got back from Helsinki, we flew home and had a, a interminably long drive back from the airport just wanting to get home to watch Twin Peaks. Um, so it, it was really lovely to watch it and it's it's nice to be able to get the episode out now. So uh, yeah, sorry for the delay, normal service will be resumed next time. Yeah, so I think we should just get into things and uh, start our recap and kind of general speculation theorizing on what happened in twin peaks part 14 yeah let's start oi oi you lucky people <laughs> so bex thoughts on part 14 generally god it it was like full blown twin peaks um, it, there was so much going on, but also it had a just a weird feeling all the way through the episode, and and it and it felt weirder that 
there were plot strands that we'd been waiting for for so long, like going to Jackrabbit's Palace, suddenly appearing, and at the same time other plot lines that then just didn't get returned to at all. Um, I, there's still funny things going on with the timeline. Uh, I, I, I loved all the stuff in the woods, I loved all the stuff with Sarah, but it was, it was very, very dreamlike, which is appropriate for the episode. Yeah, I think it's it was an odd one because it was Cooper light, but plot heavy. I think so many things were happening that actually, although we ended, well, not just our last episode, but the last few by saying, you know, oh my God, there's only X number of hours left. How are they going to uh, get this done? It does feel like this is where things are really heading towards the finale. I, I get a sense that they have probably introduced all the main plot strands that they are going to introduce. I think some are going to be left dangling at the end, but the main things are all going forward. And certainly what I think is really cool about this episode is that it's showing that Twin Peaks is going to focus back on the town of Twin Peaks. There is something big that's about to take place. And I just had this wonderful feeling, like you say, that this felt like old school Twin Peaks. But it had so much fire walk with me in it as mm. well that it feels like these last five hours are, I think, going to be the end of the Twin Peaks saga in many ways. Because so many callbacks are happening and the general plot is, yeah, it's just hurtling towards a really exciting conclusion where I was completely enthralled by everything that happened in the episode, but I don't think I could have predicted any of it which is what makes it so much fun to watch mm. so should we get on with it yeah yeah so uh, Gordon Cole calls Lucy and is kind of surprised to find that she's still working at the sheriff's office um, and you get this lovely kind of ditzy Lucy moment where she misunderstands what Gordon is asking her she's been there the whole time and she says oh no sometimes I go home and one time we went to Bora Bora which <laughs> was great and it turns out that Cole is returning Truman's call, but he doesn't realise it's a different Truman. So obviously Frank has decided to get in touch with Cole to tell him about the diary and the two Coopers. And they, they speak to each other. And what I find interesting is that although Cole mentions Laura Palmer's diary and the idea that there might be two Coopers, he doesn't mention the room key yeah. coming back. And he doesn't mention anything about Briggs's note that's been found either. Yeah, it's interesting because he has clearly passed across some information, but he knows the rest of it is related to Cooper as well. And yet, maybe he's just not familiar with Carl. Maybe he has some problem with you know with the FBI or something. Maybe he's had some interactions in the past. I mean, he's a little bit suspicious about giving too much information out. Um, certainly, I think if Hawk was there, he would have said, you know, reveal everything. But maybe... Truman also thinks this is such a weird situation I'm in. Does he even know that Gordon is aware of all this stuff? It's all, it's a bit weird, his response, but maybe they just wanted to put this specific plot point out there. But I think the key was the thing that was missing because that was the thing that he now has probably from Ben. Um, and that was an obvious link to Cooper himself from 25 years ago. So why he hasn't mentioned that is a bit strange. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to figure out if there was a way that you can bend the timeline so that... Frank visiting Ben happened after Jack Rabbit's Palace, but I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, 
and and then it gets more confusing in the next scene when Dan's wearing a green shirt again and I, I need to go back to my spreadsheet and try and figure it out because at the moment it's all very strange but it is interesting because this is one of those phone calls where to be honest in all the other calls that have taken place they've set up talking about making a phone call somebody making the phone call and somebody receiving the phone call mm. but here we just have the call being made and uh, Truman answering but we haven't had any setup about this happening which is kind of odd that they've omitted that in the process of making phone calls here but maybe we're looking a bit too uh, closely into it I think what is nice is that this has got a few callbacks to original Twin Peaks immediately in it we have um, you know Cole interacting with Lucy which kind of recalls their initial interactions when Lucy would get the phone from Gordon when he was calling up which also is another moment where we're very obviously seeing the different plot strands linking up. So yeah. now we've got Buckhorn talking to Twin Peaks, which is something that we sp- suspected may have happened a lot earlier in the return, but it's happening now, and that's the first moment which says that this episode is about to move things forward a lot. The other thing that happens is when uh, Lucy is handling the call, it's very similar to how she did it in you know season one of Twin Peaks, where she's explaining very carefully to Sheriff Harry Truman which... Uh, which line it's coming through on and things like that. So it's weird that they're putting in these callbacks to original Twin Peaks here. And the one final thing I think is interesting is that it's odd that they have a very specific moment where Cole and Lucy both remember each other, Mm. even from 25 years ago, because this episode is filled with moments which are all to do with memory and the loss of memory or the resurgence of certain memories. So it's very interesting that they've chosen to have a scene with two characters who last met 25 years ago interacting and instantly remembering everything that's um, that's passed in that time as well um, and it's also nice because when Cole is talking to Lucy it shows another trait that he did happen in the original series which was his familiarity with handling law enforcement because he was mm. very good with uh, Sheriff Harry Truman when he first met him as well it's nice because you, you realise that Lucy has probably spent the last 25 years telling people that it's the line with the light that's blinking <laughs> <laughs> over and over and over again. Uh, you just know that that's been happening. But but also it, it kind of played with Gordon's expectations because he obviously wasn't expecting Lucy to still be there. He was surprised that she was still there. And yet he was expecting Harry Truman to still be there because yeah. he was returning the call. He must have thought, oh, Sheriff Truman and then it wasn't the right Sheriff Truman yeah that's interesting actually so it's kind of playing with his expectations and, and what he must have remembered about the town yeah, versus I, the reality and I think it also is really important in like the next scene which introduces very explicitly the concept of doppelgangers and the Blue Rose cases that he obviously you know he thinks he's going to talk to Harry but he ends up talking to Frank mm. um, so yeah so we're still in the hotel in Buckhorn and Albert is essentially giving Tammy her, her kind of basic introduction into the history of the Blue Rose cases. And we find out a little bit more about this kind of mysterious first case where the term Blue Rose came from. And he describes in 1975, um, two FBI field agents on a case in Washington find one Lois Duffy having shot another Lois Duffy and the the Lois Duffy who's dying says I'm like the Blue Rose before she dies and then disappears and then they realise that the person who shot her is also Lois Duffy and that Lois Duffy then um, commits suicide in prison and they they sort of talk for a bit about what they think 
Tammy makes of this um, kind of strange doppelganger version mm. from this case. And um, she says, you know, well, the significance of the blue rose is that it doesn't occur in nature. She says that perhaps the copy is a um, something that's been conjured. And she refers to it as a tulpa, which I believe is a, a Buddhist term for a, a kind of thought form, a secondary version of yourself that you can make that can act independently from you and can travel to spiritual realms. Mm. This scene kind of frustrated me a little bit and it, it goes to the heart of what has annoyed me sometimes about the way they've written the character of Tammy in the show in that essentially Albert is getting her to reach conclusions that he already knows. So when he says to her, what's the question you should ask mm. me? And she says, what's the significance of the blue rose? Then he gets her to elaborate on it. Albert obviously already knows this. They all already know this. And sometimes it feels to me like they're getting Tammy to jump through hoops mm. without ever actually allowing her to contribute anything original to the investigation. Yeah. Because she probably would have come up with that as the important point of that story. But it's very patronising to consistently be asking her, you know, you know, what do you think of what we've just told you? Because um, they've already come out with the fact that in um, in a previous hour they were saying that you know, they know she's very smart. They know she's on the ball, but it is a bit patronising. And again, like we've said it a few times, but it's not really in keeping with the Tammy we know from the secret history. Um, even if that's something that's going to happen, you know, in the future of this plot line, it can't be that far in the future. Um, certainly, because it's you know the dossier is found in 2016, um, and it, I don't think it's already happened. But it just doesn't really make sense why they've portrayed Tammy a certain way given that she's already been trusted by Gordon Cole to a significant um, degree in the secret history. Um, yeah, and I know that obviously she's like the junior member of the Blue Rose Squad, and she's a young agent, but Albert specifically talks about this old case, saying that it was two young field agents mm. who came across this, and then reveals that it was Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries. So obviously they were young field agents once and they had this kind of crazy introduction into into this into the world of the Blue Rose. Yeah. And it just felt a little bit off the way they they basically try and lead her into making conclusions when she's perfectly capable of reaching those conclusions and yeah. it did it did remind me a little bit of the scene in Fire Walk with me when uh they're driving in the car and uh Sam and Chet are discussing what the symbols mean mm. uh, involving uh, Gordon's code that he's given them through Lil. There was that sense of Chet being the senior agent, kind of you know explaining or acknowledging the statements that Sam was making. Um, so it could have been a callback to that, but it doesn't really fit too well. It just does seem kind of quite patronising. Yeah. And the other thing about this whole bit of mythology they've introduced about the blue rose is and i can't remember it exactly but i don't think this is ever mentioned in the secret history so again this is probably one of those things which they've omitted or changed in the version of events which is presented in the secret history of twin peaks but it's notable that it's such a fundamental piece of the mythology and that it's the event that gave the blue rose task force its name and and this statement it's um it's relevance but it hasn't been mentioned before in like such a weighty mythological tome as the secret history of, of Twin Peaks. Yeah. 
But it does also do something interesting, which is it seems to focus the idea of blue rose cases on doppelgangers. Um, and it's it's nice because in one respect it doesn't simplify, but it narrows down what this mythology is about. But it also tells you that doppelgangers have been around for a long time. Uh, it's not just a recent event, sort of post Twin Peaks 1990. Um, it's been happening for a while and it's always been under investigation by uh, Cole and at least Jeffries at the earliest stages since the 70s. Um, so it tells you that there are probably going to be more doppelgangers than we already know about in the series. I don't think everyone's going to be a doppelganger, but there will be doppelgangers uh, floating around. But in terms of the dates, they say that this happens in the mid-70s. Yeah. And what's interesting is that that means it's... Uh, still a lot long after the events of part eight where you might expect weirdness to have started to be um, sort of permeating the real world with the trinity experiment and um, the events sort of with the convenience store etc all this stuff happened a significant time jump afterwards so we don't really know what triggered it but it might have just been the first time that this was observed by somebody yeah and I also find it interesting that what this means is that Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries were originally peers and I guess kind of partners yeah. when they worked on it together. Because by the time you get to Fire Walk with me, Gordon is already their boss. Yeah. And um, and Philip has already been missing. Yeah. But if they were partners way back when, it suggests that you know they must have been friends. They must have been close. Yeah. And you, you kind of wonder how long they were partners for before Gordon Cole started getting promoted. Yeah, because they have. Um scenes together in the secret history where they're investigating things they go to twin peaks during the establishment of the listening post and it's clear that they've known each other for a long time but it's unclear where the divergence in their paths happened um but it's kind of an interesting thing to wonder about because they say this is 76 and jeffrey's i think disappears in uh, well, he, he disappears for a long time, but there's a rep, but he turns up, doesn't he, in 87 or something mm -hmm. in Fire Walk with me? Um, I can't remember the exact date. So th there's been a long time when he hasn't been around, but he's clearly an integral part of Gordon Cole's life up to a certain point. Yeah. Uh, and then just as I've been talking about this, uh, Gordon Cole comes in. Coffee time! <laughs> it's one of those moments I saw and I thought, because we were also watching it, um, later than everyone else that must have already been gift <laughs> like instantly it was probably gift during the episode <laughs> because it's one of those great little Gordon Cole moments where I think we discussed it in our slice of pie with Seth Manukin there are so many quotable bits of dialogue in there mm. and I was at work today and I just felt like walking into the office in the morning <laughs> giving everyone a thumbs up and shouting coffee time <laughs> no one would have got it but uh, it would have been fun for me and then there's a, a, a crazy digression with the window cleaner who's being really squeaky and didn't even look like there was that much water or suds or anything yeah. going on on the outside of the window. But he's kind of squeegeeing the window and Cole is fiddling about with his hearing aid. Yeah, I think it's it's odd. I mean, it does call back um, elements of Cole's hearing aid being sort of overly sensitive. Um, it happened with... Uh, Albert when they're outside Yankton etc where he was telling him to quiet down and not kind of uh, scratch his feet on the ground when he was shuffling around but it's also saying I think something else which is although there are scenes where Cole pretends he can't hear 
I think that hearing aid is doing something different, which is to screen out certain frequencies, certain sound frequencies. Um, those seem to be the ones that are aggravating him. Mm. And I do wonder if that's going to come into play later on. Um, there are, you know, this whole idea of, you know, listen to the sounds. There's certain sounds which Cole is sensitive to. I don't know if it's going to be super important, but I think it will come into play in the last few hours. So uh, then Dan comes in and says, Deputy Diane reporting. So we know that this is after she's been asked to be a deputy, which was happening in the evening in the hotel. But she's now wearing the green shirt that she wears the day they go to the zone. Yeah. And I'm trying to wrap my head around what this means in terms of the Buckhorn timeline. I also find it strange that why does Tammy fetch her coffee? Yeah. It's just a really weird thing, anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So they want to ask her if Coop mentioned Briggs the last night that Diane saw him. And she doesn't really want to talk about it, but eventually she says, well, yes, he did mention Major Briggs. And at that point, Albert reveals that Briggs has been found killed in Buckhorn. Hmm. Because until then, Diane didn't know because she didn't go into the autopsy room. Yeah, She stayed outside. And actually, I think what's interesting is that no one in Twin Peaks knows this either. No. So both Bobby and Betty, you know, still believe the story uh, that he died uh, in a fire at the LPA 25 years ago. Yeah, this is true. And then they, but they do mention to Diane the ring that was found in his stomach. And then you get this bombshell moment where you find <laughs> out that Janie E is the half-sister of Diane. Did you see that coming? I didn't at all. No, I did not at all. That was bonkers. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. And I think it's important because it tells you, it really confirms that the events, if we didn't need any more reinforcement, <laughs> the events in Las Vegas are real and they're happening. It's just that they are under some weird lodgy influences surrounding and protecting Dougie in some way. It's such a weird thing. I can't believe we've watched 14 hours of this. Admittedly, Janie turns up in, you know, part three or whatever, but... I, I didn't see that at all. I always thought, oh, Janie is such an odd name. But I didn't get the Evans and link to the E and things like that. But, you know, it's a really interesting link. And I think it's important because all of a sudden you have, just like we're talking about with Lucy, we have the link that puts Buckhorn in line with Las Vegas. Yeah. So we've already established Buckhorn Twin Peaks and now we've got Buckhorn Las Vegas. Um, but how do you think it relates to the the text message Diane got that was intercepted by Albert as well saying you know Las Vegas they haven't asked yet I don't know because she was wearing red when that happened which puts it the same day that they deputized her whereas if she's now wearing green that could potentially put this the same day that they go to the zone and that she looks at the coordinates Unless she's just reusing her clothes. Maybe she's just getting the hotel. I mean, my guess is, yeah, I mean, my (laughs) guess is she was called to do a one-off couple of days kind of thing. Didn't pack enough. And now, you know, hotel dry cleaning bill is going up. (laughs) But I I think it could be that if Mr. C is behind the manufacturing of Dougie Jones, has he basically used the link from Diane to Janie E in order to find someone with whom to set Dougie Jones up in a life yeah. in some way which is 
kind of a dangerous thing because surely if Diane and Janie ever reconciled one day, she would meet Dougie. Presumably she has never met Dougie or it would have been really obvious that he looked like Cooper. Yeah, it's kind of odd. I mean, I I thought about that, but I think you're right. Um, You know, they are estranged, but it's odd that she wouldn't have even seen a picture of him. Yeah. At some point. But I think it's just for the convenience of the plot, maybe they reintroduce that. And it is a plot twist that, you know, we didn't see coming. I was just actually thinking, going back to this idea of the tulpa early on, I was just, you know, going from a tangent. Do you think this idea that characters are created as like thought products of people do you think that's to do with also how laura is now becoming a character who is the product of the remembrances of everyone involved with her many years ago i I do wonder if that's going to come into play i think explicitly they they haven't introduced her in a physical form yet but it's odd to drop in the term tulpa and then use it in reference to doppelgangers and this idea of conjuring and manufacturing but in this case it's specifically about the ability of the mind to produce a sort of sentient form in some you know in some way and I I do wonder if that's conceptually equivalent to Laura being whisked out of the red room and maybe it was the the power of her remembrance that Mm. has also brought her back into play. Yeah, and it raises questions as to how exactly Dougie was manufactured. Yeah. What that process was. Because he was someone who did just disappear mm. in the Red Room. Um, I suppose we've never actually seen a doppelganger get killed, have we? I mean, well, Mr. C got shot, but, but the yeah. woodsman presumably saved him. But it does make you wonder about what the end game is going to be. Because if one aspect of it is saying that a doppelganger can kill their doppelganger, that might come into play, obviously, when uh, Dale Cooper finally confronts Mr. C, if that's going to happen. Mm. And then we get uh, this really funny phone call to the Las Vegas office, where it seems like Gordon Cole must be famous in the FBI <laughs> as a director, because the, the Las Vegas office are incredibly happy to mm. get a call from him. Um but they don't seem to be expecting him to be shouting. Mm. Maybe they've never met him before, but we've just heard of him. And uh, for some reason, Gordon asked them to find Mr. and Mrs. Douglas Jones. Why didn't they give him the name Janie? Yeah. I mean, it would have made it so much easier to find him. It's an odd omission, but my concern is that that means that this won't be resolved for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> and they, he says to them that these people are wanted in connection with the murder. So obviously he's not yet expecting it to have anything to do with a, a second coup. I mean, mm. there's no reason why he would. And then you get what is, in a very Peaksian episode, you get what is probably the most Peaksy moment of them all, mm. where you see after the phone call in the Las Vegas <laughs> office, Wilson, how many times have I told you this is what we do in the FBI? There's <laughs> crazy music in the background. It's like this distorted jazz music going on. I have no idea. But I love that moment, and I could watch that on loop for a full hour, if that's what part 15 was. <laughs> and apparently, I was reading an interview with the actor who plays the one who's getting shouted at, you know, mm. the one who walks into the room. So he's actually a Welsh actor. Yeah. And he got, uh, and again, he was picked out by, uh, from like a, a headshot um, due to the kind of very kind of distinctive way that he looked. Um, and again, was given incredibly short notice, about two days notice, that they wanted him in it. 
and then he was there and he got his lines and he recorded it and then he, and then he was done is that it is that his, his, his whole appearance I, I don't know if he's going to be in it again but he, he said that I think it was something like they, they told him on a Monday that it, it, they took he took nine months to tell him that he was going to be in it yeah. and he assumed that he hadn't got the role because they didn't say anything and he said they called me on a Monday and I had to be in wardrobe on the Wednesday to record it because there was just so much secrecy about it do you think that with these 23 Dougie Joneses they're going to narrow it down because the Las Vegas police have run Cooper's fingerprints yeah I think I think the fingerprints have to lead somewhere yeah because they're certainly not leading the Fuscos anywhere <laughs> the Fuscos are going to Sunday lunch <laughs> with their mum um I think it will, and I think that will also then lead them to the fact that somebody tried to kill him. Yeah, and he's connected to the whole like the spike arrest. I mean, they they must the FBI must have heard if someone involved in organised crime had been arrested in yeah. the in the city. So I, I think maybe next week we're going to get a very Las Vegas heavy episode to wrap that up and yeah. maybe get Cooper. Yeah, because the FBI was the only thing happening in Las Vegas yeah. this week. And I do wonder if maybe, because last week we were thinking about what day it was when Cooper was showing up at work and Sinclair tried to kill him. And we were considering that that might even be a Saturday because of how many days in a row he'd been at work. And I wonder if Las Vegas had got a day ahead of everything else and now everything else is catching up. Um, yeah, because I think this is certainly now a Saturday in Twin Peaks when yeah. they're going to Jack Rabbit's Palace. But at the timeline will... will hopefully makes some sense in the end but it doesn't make sense at the moment and then Cole sends Diane away because presumably he doesn't want her to listen to uh, his Monica Bellucci dream <laughs> and one detail I thought was actually quite interesting in this scene was if you look at the floor down by Albert's feet you see one of those uh, silver bulky suitcases which is used for those funny FBI phone communication things. Ah. So I don't know what that means. I mean, it could be anything in the suitcase, but it's the kind of one that Wyndham Earl used to use. And I think it's very similar to the one that Mr. C has in part two. Mm. So, you know, with that ambiguity over who the voice of Philip Jeffries was back then uh, on the phone call to Mr. C, uh, it was an interesting thing just to kind of put into that shot. I mean, amidst all the other old school electronic equipment which is uh, which is in the uh, room they're talking in very interesting it's a bit sarcastic <laughs> it was meant to be it was very interesting <laughs> it's a bit harsh it was very I hadn't that at all bit harsh <laughs> so Cole tells Albert and Tammy about the call you had with Sheriff Truman about Laura's diary and the two Coopers. And then he segues into saying that he's had a Monica Bellucci dream or another Monica Bellucci dream. <laughs> so he clearly has these quite often. Yeah, I think it's quite telling from Albert's expression. And also even Tammy looks a bit uncomfortable with the whole situation. <laughs> so maybe it's the first time she's heard about this. Uh, but Albert's heard this many times. Yeah. And I really love the ominous music that plays throughout this whole dream sequence flashback memory hmm. section it's very interesting so he's dreamt that he's in paris on a case and monica bellucci has called him to meet up at a cafe and brought some friends along and they have coffee 
And Cooper is there, but Cole couldn't see Cooper's face. And he says that Monica Bellucci said the ancient phrase, we are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. And Cole says that he told her that he understood. And Monica then asks, but who is the dreamer? Yeah. And one interesting thing I thought about this is that they're sitting across from each other on the ta- at the table yeah. in the street in... This must be the bit that they filmed in France, right? Yeah, and gave them their little uh, cheeky French tax rebate. Yeah. <laughs> so that they're kind of face-to-face with each other and she's saying something cryptic. And although what we hear is Gordon talking to Albert and Tammy saying, I told her that I understood. Yeah. What that means he must have said in the dream is... I understand. Yeah, which is the same as what we heard in part one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when talking to another cryptic person. Um, yeah. In black and white as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Monica Bellucci tells, well, signals to him that he should look behind him, which seems to be suggestive of him look um, kind of metaphorically looking behind himself and remembering something from his past. Mm. And he sees himself as a young man. And we get a sequence from Fire Walk With Me. And it's the sequence where Cooper is saying it's 10.10am on February the 16th. I was worried about today because of the dream I told you about. So we've got someone talking about a different dream within the memory, within the dream that Cole is having. And then Philip Jeffries comes in and does the, the famous who do you think that is there? Only it's different this time. Yeah, so... Firstly, it was astounding to see David Bowie back in Twin Peaks. It must have been, actually, I think, a real shock to, you know, quote-unquote casual viewers who Mm. probably aren't aware that David Bowie was in Fire Walk With Me and certainly never thought that he would be making an appearance on TV, you know, since he uh, sadly passed away. But it's a wonderful callback to Fire Walk With Me and to pay some reverence to David Bowie and also such an iconic character in the Twin Peaks mythology who had a very short amount of screen time but had such a big impact in Fire Walk With Me and has clearly cast an incredible shadow over the return in light of the multiple references to Philip Jeffries who may or may not actually be the same Philip Jeffries uh, that we're seeing. Um, But going back to that the fact that it's you know a different version of what we see so this is the one that is actually an alternate take from the missing pieces it's not the one we actually saw in fire walk with me and i've been puzzling over that a little bit i still don't know what it all means um i mean firstly i think the fact that it's an alternate take is itself quite interesting because it almost seems like as cole is remembering this dream it's almost like he's remembering what actually happened as closely as possible Mm. but it's subtly different and that's why an alternate take of the same scene um, works quite well in this context Um, but I don't know why they used that alternate take why they didn't use the fire walk with me one my guess is I don't think it's true that there must be some uh, difference in the sound quality on the recording because obviously although the missing pieces were remastered when they were released um, with the complete mystery box set and soon the Criterion box set maybe the audio quality isn't up to scratch 
um, to the standard they want for uh, the return. And I know that David Lynch is such a stickler for sound design that maybe there was something off about it that meant that it couldn't be used in some way. So do, does this ex- explain why we think that the line was actually dubbed by someone else? Yeah, so it's odd because um, it doesn't it doesn't perfectly sound like the 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 kind of southern drawl that uh, David Bowie has as Philip Jeffries. It's subtly different, and it is actually in this case um, a different actor who redubs that line. Um, and he, I think he's credited as voice in the end credits. Yeah, um, which is puzzling a little bit, but then. Um, it's now clear that it was the person who did that uh, um, sort of impression of uh, of him. In another meta way, it's interesting that they use somebody else to dub David Bowie's Philip Jeffries, given that in part two, when Mr. C is on the phone call to Philip Jeffries, um, the voice is clearly not the same uh, as David Bowie. Clearly it's been modulated um, electronically in some way to disguise his voice intentionally by whoever is pretending to be Philip Jeffries, whether it's Philip Jeffries or not. But the fact that um, Mr. C says, you know, this is Philip Jeffries, and the guy says on the other end, you know, uh, you're going back in tomorrow. Um, it's always, I mean, that is one of the big mysteries about this whole season. And the implication is that it might be somebody who's using his identity to do certain things, but actually, um, that person on the phone probably wasn't the David Bowie iteration of uh, Philip Jeffries. Yeah. Do you think that the voice actor they got to to, uh, to dub it knew who he was dubbing? Because what a job that is when someone says, oh, by the way, you've got to read up the lines from David Bowie <laughs> of all people. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, I, I still don't... Un- well, I don't think I will understand it for a while, but it does seem like there's something to it. It must be really odd, though, if you're picked out to do well, any performance in Twin Peaks and you get your script on the day or whatever. You must have gone to a recording booth and been told to say a line, which is so iconic. And it's weird that they've changed the line as well. Mm. Um, but full credit to him for uh, keeping it quiet for this long, because I think it's <laughs> impressive that, you know, they've managed to include David Bowie in some way. I mean, he gets his in memoriam at the end. Mm. Um I'm still holding on to the fact that David Bowie will appear in person. I think the fact they brought this in is also a reminder to the audience that the Philip Jeffries, who we've been speaking about, was played by David Bowie. And I I know I'd love to see it, but I think they must have done something now. There'll be some reason why, um, you know, I, okay, I'm going to downgrade my, my uh, extent of appearance from a vocal and physical appearance to maybe just a physical appearance but of him in his later years i think he will be in it in some way maybe in some bizarre you know like there was a picture of mr c in uh rio yeah i can imagine a picture of mr c and an old david bowie mm. you know there'll be some there'll be something that has been used because they wouldn't have introduced um that scene i think without needing a callback to the fact that you know, the prime Philip Jeffries was David Bowie in some way. Yeah. And then we come back to the theme of, of remembering or forgetting when Gordon, he he, rem- he remembers within the dream the part about Philip Jeffries saying, 
who do you think that is there? Yeah. Um, rather than who do you think this is there? But that part. And he says, I hadn't remembered that. And then Albert says, I'm beginning to remember that too. Yeah. It's as if something has clouded their memories of Philip Jeffries being there. Or what exactly it was that he said when he points at Cooper? And maybe the fact that they've literally just had the idea put into their heads of two Coopers yeah. from the call that Cole has had with Frank Truman, that it suggests that there is something about encountering lodginess that is affecting people's memory. And it's a theme that comes up again and again. Yeah, I mean, certainly later in the episode, we see that very heavily. The one bit that immediately made me think of was the scene where, I can't remember which part it was now, but it's uh, when the Mitchams first show up at the casino and they're speaking to uh, the... Well, he wasn't the pit boss. He was the guy who was kind of the day-to-day manager of it. And when he seems shocked and a bit confused and maybe can't remember what happened when Dougie Coop came in and won all the jackpots, he looks completely befuddled by events. And I think we discussed it back then, but it did seem that Lodge influencers can serve their role but leave you with no memory of what's happening um, afterwards and certainly that fits with the fact that um, at least for some of the events it's clear that Leland was unable to recall what he was doing whilst he was inhabited by Bob Um, not all of them but some of them Mm. Um, so it's clear that there are things going on with memory and that plays a big role here and noticeably what I thought was interesting was this whole discussion about when Cooper has his FBI pin and not has his pin it's interesting that there's a close-up of Cole the whole time whilst he's recounting this dream. And you can see on his lapel he has the FBI pin. And when they cut back to the pseudo-appearance of Dale Cooper in the dream, he's wearing his pin then as mm. well. And the last time he had it on was um, when he was in the Purple Zone with Nido and the American Girl. Yeah. The other thing that really struck me about this whole scene particularly the flashback to fire walk with me when cooper is saying i was worried about today because of the dream i told you about is how great it was to have even like 10 seconds of actual cooper in the show yeah that's true because we don't see um the uh iterations of cooper from the return in this episode at all really but the only cooper you do see is is classic coop yeah because e- even in the early parts of the return when he's in the red room he's coop but he's not full coop yeah um because he's in the red room and then since then he's been dougie coop yeah the whole time and just that little glimpse of hey remember this guy (laughs) remember what it was like uh yeah that was that was lovely so now we're back in the twin peaks sheriff's office and it's finally jack rabbit's palace day (laughs) It's been so long, so long. Uh, but yet they're all about to head off. They're getting their supplies. They've got their turkey and cheese, their ham and cheese, their roast beef and cheese, and their just cheese. <laughs> oh, Andy, you do like just cheese. <laughs> it was so obvious. The minute Hawk said, who ordered just cheese? There would be that kind of inane, inane <laughs> grin and acknowledgement from Andy. It was wonderful. Mm, cheese sandwich. <laughs> Uh, and then they kind of lure Chad into the room and then immediately arrest him. And it kind of reminded me of the way they, they trick Leland yeah, into going into yeah. the room. The thing is, so they don't really say what they've arrested him for. They said they've been watching him for months. Now, 
I'm not sure again if we've just jumped forward a little bit and so we might see something which links up you know the preceding moments where maybe they explain that there was some specific sting which they've had him under um because it could be anything it could be his association with uh, Richard Horn, it could be the hit and run, it could be stealing the mail, it could be anything. It could be all of those things. What's actually nice is that uh, a simplest um, way of looking at it is to say, you know what, they just decided to move the plot forward. Yeah. And forget that a little bit and say, look, let's just arrest Chad and put him into a new situation rather than draw that out, which is in the jail later on. Yeah. And then they seem very matter of fact about it. So, so Bobby and Andy have just kind of pull Chad out of the room mm. and Hawk just says to Frank very dryly there's your roast beef and cheese <laughs> as opposed to Andy's cheese and cheese <laughs> Chad don't get a sandwich no sandwich but if he did he would have had pretty all four of them and ate by himself <laughs> probably, not, not in the conference room not in the conference room <laughs> he was never going to get a sandwich in that room <laughs> so now we're out in the woods in search of Jack Rabbit's palace there are electricity cables humming ominously when they arrive at the side of the road yeah this is i think well firstly i think the way they do the woods here is fantastic it looks incredible it's actually very similar to the way they shoot the woods in the opening credits Mm. but it's so crazy the way you see all these different shades of green you see the mist everywhere it's very ominous but what's really nice it's very Twin Peaks to go back into the woods which was like the heart of the whole mystery you know that you're centering in on you know what secrets are lying in the woods and you know that all of a sudden something is going to happen it's going to be big yeah and Bobby leads them through the woods up to where Jack Rabbit's palace is and it's like this huge decaying tree trunk which do you think that in some ways it kind of resembles the castle on the Purple Sea where the firemen and Senorita Dido lived. Yeah, so I think it's the first of many bits which are calling back directly to part uh, eight. But I think you're right. The shape of it, this kind of tall kind of tower and the fact that even the the earth around it looks like the sea kind of going up against the, the base of it. Mm. Um because it's all kind of like ripply and it kind of it's almost got a purple a purpley red tinge to it as well it's meant to be i think the same thing um and it does make you wonder about this because immediately you know that something is going to happen here which probably links to that same structure that we saw before and even then so when we last saw the spaceship in uh part three as well that also had a very similar shape that kind of mm. dome bell like shape as well so um, yeah, I think we're seeing the use of that imagery again for that specific reason. And then they all put Sorrel in their pockets and they head 253 yards due east. And you have this beautiful shot as they're going through the forest and you see the smoke start to appear yeah. as they as they kind of round the corner. And you, and you see this kind of, in the middle of this lush, verdant forest, this eerie smoke. And then as the smoke starts to clear slightly... Uh, you see, first of all, um, Nido, who's uh, <laughs> lying naked on the ground, almost as if she'd just been born into the world, completely new. Yeah. And then you see that next to her on the ground is a pool which resembles the pool at Glastonbury Grove yeah. of engine oil, but inside is this kind of shimmering white and gold liquid. Yeah. 
Um, I'm not really sure what it's meant to be um, inside the pool. But this, this light seems to emanate from within it. So is this the entrance, do you think, to the White Lodge? Well, I, th- I think maybe it is, because before we, we theorised that maybe where the fireman is was some other place. Yeah. But the fact that this is such a, a kind of symbolically um, similar place in the woods, the entrance to the Black Lodge, mm. um, but with a, a different liquid within the pool. Yeah. Coupled with what we see in the vortex when it starts to appear, yeah. I think maybe it is the White Lodge or some kind of, in, in the same way that the Red Room might be a waiting room to the Black Lodge, maybe this is a transitional place to the White Lodge. Yeah, I think what we brought up before in another episode was the fact that the White Lodge has been represented before as a scene of sort of lush green foliage and flowers. So when we see Major Briggs in that bizarre sort of woodland throne mm. and even when Wyndham Earl describes the White Lodge yeah. it doesn't seem like the black and white zone or the purple zone which it's kind of situated in um, that we see in part three and also uh, here as well. Yeah and when Major Briggs talks to Bobby in the diner about the the house that he visits with the light emanating from within it feels mm. very different to this. Yeah. Um, but I they realise that Nido is alive and it's very telling that Andy is the one who, who goes and sort of try, holds her hand and yeah. tries to comfort her. But they all seem to be in somewhat of a daze yeah. because there's no immediate kind of drive to action. They, they, they almost seem like they're already being affected yeah. by where they are. And it's 2.53... And this light seems to come from within the pool. And a, a vortex appears in the sky, like the one that was in the zone yeah. in Buckhorn. But this time the centre of the vortex is white rather than black. Yeah, which again could be a reason why this could be the White Lodge rather than uh, an intermediate place. But I think it's not, it hasn't been fully addressed. I think it's just interesting that we're seeing um, you know, that kind of uh, duality of the imagery again for the black and the white. Um, and I think it's interesting that for the return, they are actually going potentially to the White Lodge. Again, yeah. it's, it's this idea of going full circle. We've shown you the Black Lodge in the original, and now we're showing you uh, this now. Yeah. And the, the fact that the entrance to the Black Lodge was surrounded by dead trees, yeah. and yet here we've got you know, this, this beautiful greenery everywhere yeah. around the, the White Lodge, if that is where this is. Yeah. And again, with this idea of the... Uh, vortex and smoke and things i think it's interesting that here like you were saying nido emerges naked but it's very similar to how ruth davenport's body appeared back Mm. of the zone so again i mean i I think it was never really clear but it did look like after gordon had looked into the vortex and then been pulled back by albert it's then that they noticed ruth's body Mm. so clearly the expulsion of corpses from uh from these vortexes wherever they are leading to results in this um but it doesn't explain necessarily why cooper didn't emerge that way except for the fact that he actually went through one of those funny electrical gratings didn't he and yeah. that's why that's maybe why he managed to keep his suit yeah so when the last we saw nido she was falling through space and presumably she has fallen through 
the vortex in some yeah. way and appeared there. But she can't have been there for that long um, because, I mean, you would die in the forest, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think I think it's meant, it's almost implied that she is appearing around this 2.53 time on the 1st of October. And what that reminds me of is the fact that this is the same time that was on the American Girl's Watch. Yeah. So, you know, I there's a, there's so much, I think, that's relevant about that opening of part three. But this is the first moment where actually it's interesting that uh, we're looking at that event but now we've reached it in the present and it's unclear what would have happened if Cooper had somehow maybe left that room, gone through the door or interacted with the mother character that was outside. Cause it's still unclear who that mother is. Mm. We presume it's the experiment and it's all linked together, but for some reason Cooper emerged a different way. And so therefore he didn't emerge on the 1st of October, 253. But maybe that's what, Briggs thought would happen yeah that by sending a message for uh this team from the sheriff's department to go there at that time they would then find Cooper although he would be naked yeah um, and it does make you wonder what's going to happen tomorrow because that's when the other day is mm. so um as far as I know we haven't seen an indication of 253 on the 2nd of October being explicitly referenced although we do know that uh the evolution of the arm said, you know, 2.53 time and time again. Yeah. So something is going to happen the next day. And it'll be interesting to know whether that's going to happen in part 15 or they're going to skip a little bit um, and come back to it uh, later on. And then of all of them who are there, it's Andy who gets taken up into the White Lodge. <laughs> Which, I mean, do you think that this is essentially that, you know, he is, he's always been the kind of, sweetest most sensitive yeah. member of the sheriff's department is that why he gets taken up is it his empathy i think so um briggs originally said in the original series you know uh i think fear opens one door and uh, love the other mm. and i think it becomes clear that again it, it is hinting that this might be the white lodge or a waiting room for the white lodge um that he is maybe the uh the best of all the of all the people there in you know they're all good characters. They're all true men. But mm. um, I think it's maybe that he is perhaps the most uh, fundamentally all-encompassing good amongst them. And it's interesting that, you know, when Wyndham took Annie to the entrance to the Black Lodge, she went into that trance. Yeah. And I think that's very much, like you say, what's being mi uh, mirrored here with... Uh, frank hawk and bobby but the fact that andy is able to um transcend that and suddenly step up and uh, be the person who interacts with nido and stands up entranced by the void in the same way that uh, cole was it's mm. kind of interesting that he's he's almost willing to accept this in a strange way So, Andy and the fireman, <laughs> he's sitting in a chair and it looks like the same chairs that Coop and the fireman are in when they're talking to each other back yeah. in part one. But notably, we didn't, there was a question over whether they were actually both present at the same time in that scene. Yeah. Because we only ever saw the shot of the fireman 
or Cooper, we never saw them in the same shot. Whereas now we see, you know, both of them in the same physical space. And there was a there was a potentially a situation where they were talking to each other from different places. Yeah, and the fireman reveals his name yeah. to be the fireman with a capital F, uh, which we kind of already knew because of the soundtrack yeah. thing. Um, but this confirms that he is the fireman. And Andy's given a, a sort of smoking star-shaped box. And as the smoke rises up around him, he looks up and there are these domed ceiling lights. Yeah. And he starts to see visions in the light. And the series of visions he sees is, first of all, the the flickering view of the experiment that you see in the box in New York. Yeah. Then the mother spewing out the chain of eggs with Bob inside. Then the flickering woodsman outside the convenience store. Then a close-up of the God of Light dude, who yeah. actually gets to say, God of Light. Um, then you see shots of electricity wires going past. Then the shot of the girl at the Twin Peaks High School who's screaming as she runs across the quad. Yeah, which was used at the beginning of part one, wasn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. Was it in a... Was it pre-credits, wasn't it? It was. It was that It was that very early pre credit sequence where it also zooms in on Laura Palmer's photo in yeah. the trophy cabinet. Yeah. After it does the repeat of the meanwhile scene, yeah. Yeah. Um, then we get the red curtains and then the picture of Laura. Again, it's the photo image. And she's got two angels, one either side of her, floating. Which are the angels from Firewalk. Or the angel from Firewalk with me. We see two of them now. Yeah. Um, then uh, a shot of Nido on the ground. Then a shot of the two Coopers demerging from each other. So Andy's now seen the face of Mr. C. Yeah. Uh, which could be quite important. It's also mirrored as well. It's not the... Mm. Yeah, which is interesting. So that fits with the the fingerprint, which has been reversed as well. Uh, yeah. On the, on the left-hand ring finger, yeah. Because if Mr. C is going to turn up in Twin Peaks, if what he's looking for is there from the coordinates, Andy now knows not only what he looks like now, but also that he is not Cooper. Yeah. We can we can assume that he could intuit that from, yeah. from what he's And certainly when he comes out of this whole sequence, it's clear he does know what's happened in that room. Yeah. It's not like he's, he's emerged and forgotten anything or doesn't understand. He knows exactly what happened there. Yeah, it's like seeing these series of images is actually imparting far more information directly to his mind hmm. than w- without conversation yeah it probably wouldn't have worked if you try to explain this to Andy it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked <laughs> uh-huh. uh, then we get um, a phone with the uh, the line blinking the blinking light on it and then a shot of what must be from the future where Andy's getting Lucy to stand in a specific place in a corridor in the station yeah and she looks very wary about what's happening then another shot of Nido on the ground, and then close-ups of the number six telegraph pole. Yeah, which has been travelling around all the yeah. way from Deer Meadow, uh, from the old Fat Trout trailer park to the new Fat Trout trailer park. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that was I mean that was most notably seen in the return, uh, just after the hit and run. Um, but again, it fits with the idea of the wood and the electricity and the lodge spirits that can inhabit those things. But it's clear that this is tying together 
what we've seen not just in part eight very explicitly but lots of different strands are starting to uh to coalesce here. yeah and then the smoke returns and andy's heart starts racing for a few seconds yeah then he just disappears back in but back into nothing again but he doesn't disappear like coop disappears because mm. coop kind of had that weird flickering of parts of him disappearing out. he almost looked like a two-dimensional character yeah. who was being removed but andy just disappears um so that maybe tells you that when you're in the room with the giant or the fireman you disappear like that when you're in another place communicating with him you kind of phase out in a slightly different way yeah and then back on the ground in the woods the other three are now kind of wandering around back by jack rabbit's palace yeah and they're almost like fragments of themselves where some are moving fast and others haven't quite caught up and when all of the different disparate versions of them catch up with each other they become whole again hmm. um but none of them can remember what had happened after they'd left jack rabbit's palace yeah it looks like the woodsman hmm. firstly when they're wandering around uh outside the convenience store in part eight but also you know at the beginning of part eight when you first see them approaching mr c when he's being shot by ray that's the first time you see them being kind of these sort of ethereal spirits um but i think it's also a potentially a, a comment on the structure of the timelines because we've been saying for a while now that the timelines are all messy um but it does seem like they're all they're all just running in parallel at different speeds mm. and it's almost like it's saying that eventually all these different plot strands if each character was a plot strand they're all moving at different paces, but eventually they will all converge at the same point when everything is synchronised. Yeah. Um, and that's clearly what we're seeing in this episode as well. So it's interesting that they, they use that visual metaphor as well. And then Andy emerges carrying Nido, and he's he's suddenly very certain of himself. He's taking control of this whole situation. Yeah. The others don't remember anything, but he does. He says she's very important and there are people who want her dead. Yeah. So he's obviously been given far more detailed information that has somehow come through the visions yeah. because you never see a fireman actually say that to him yeah. and yet he's received that that detailed information but uh, Frank and Hawk can't remember anything that happened yeah. at all which probably means and this could be very important that in a few minutes we don't see it but maybe they get all the sandwiches confused <laughs> <laughs> who ordered just cheese who ordered just cheese maybe Frank is like did I order just cheese? <laughs> and Andy's like, I think I ordered the roast beef and cheese. But Bobby ate his sandwich. So he might actually get another oh, yeah. sandwich. And Hawk would be like, maybe I ate a sandwich. This could be a... <laughs> All I know is going to be bonkers in part 15. <laughs> sandwich confusion. It, it, it also, all this stuff about the food though, it reminds me of at the end of season two, Coop had gone into the Red Room. Harry was waiting for him outside and he's been waiting there for hours and Andy comes along and asks him if he wants him to go to the double R and get a plate special mm. and dessert for him and bring it back for him. <laughs> so what so you kind of touched upon it just now, but why why do you think it was Andy? Do you think it's relevant that it was Andy? Because certainly I think in light of the conversation later on with the character of Freddie. Yeah. Um there is a statement of uh you know, why not you? When he says, why did you pick me? You know, why not you? I, you know, is that is that the simplest explanation here or is there something more? So I was thinking about what Freddie says and we'll, we'll kind of come on to this in more detail later, but 
he says that when he leaves the pub, it strikes him that he's wasting his life and he should be helping people. Yeah. And it's after he has this sudden realisation, this sudden desire to help people, that he suddenly feels like he wants to climb up on these boxes and jump off. And I think Andy, too, is a very selfless person. I mean, he was willing Mm. to give up his uh, red chair for uh, (laughs) for Lucy. Um, And then she did the same for him. I think they're both very selfless. I I think, you know, yes, he's kind of very very pure-hearted and very kind but I, I think maybe it does come from a, just a desire to help people he's the one who who bends down and holds Nido's hand um I, you know I think he's always been driven by a huge amount of empathy and I think maybe that's the thing that connects the two of them is that Freddie suddenly had this desire to want to help people and to do something with his life um and maybe that's you know, what's always driven Andy, you know, you think, why, why did Andy, of all people, decide to become a deputy? Yeah. Um, it must have been because he wanted to help people. Yeah. Because he doesn't seem particularly driven by any other reason. Mm. And I think it does, in terms of what how they've portrayed Andy um, this season, I think it's interesting that they've played him as original Andy, almost to the point of parody. But it just makes the contrast even more obvious now mm. when he's uh, more assertive and confident in himself, etc. Um, the other thing, so what do you think about the fact that when we see Cooper at the start of part one, um, Cooper is forwards and the giant is backwards, whereas here both the giant and Andy are backwards? Yeah. It's odd because Cooper is also the only person who's forwards in the Black Lodge. Yeah. And he's forwards in the White Lodge as well. So is it something special about him Yeah, that makes him able to to travel in a different direction to everybody else? Or is it his perspective? It could be. But if it was his perspective, then the giant would be forwards. Yeah. And then Andy would be backwards. But it's clear that that's not the case. Although when we saw the giant and Senorita Dido in part eight, they weren't backwards. They were no, forwards. they were forwards. So maybe it's when you mix both worlds together in some way, something funny happens. Yeah. But Cooper is special. Yeah. And that's the vaguest explanation I can give, but we'll move <laughs> on from that. Um, the other thing I think about Andy, though, is... So I, I, it was interesting that you mentioned that he has now seen the face of Mrs. C. Yeah. He's also seen the face of Bob, because he was the one who drew the sketch of... Uh, Bob, yeah. when he is uh, speaking to Sarah, you know, right at the beginning, maybe episode one, when uh, Coop doesn't go because he's a strong sender. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they get uh, Sarah to describe the face of the person she saw yeah. in her house. And it's Andy who draws Bob. So Bob must. So Andy has seen Bob. In original Twin Peaks, because he drew the picture. Yeah. And now he's seen his face again in that bubble. Yeah. So I yeah. wonder if it, that's going to be another element of him connecting the dots. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true like or not, but it's, you know, obviously his, his drawing skills came in handy when he was able to uh, copy the pictogram from our cave. But it's interesting that he's seen both the face of Bob and the face of Mr. C now. Yeah. And that can become important, I think. That might be why he was chosen to an extent, because he, he's able to connect the dots in um, in a very straightforward way. He doesn't look for complications. He can see mm. things for what they are sometimes, which other characters can get sort of uh, sort of caught up in. 
And he's also seen the face of the head woodsman, as I, as I think the Cordelite dude. Yeah, that's true. The Lincoln been. woodsman. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I can sense that's going to be a very interesting uh, interaction when that takes place. Yeah. We, we've been wondering for a while now if the woodsmen are going to descend on Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, I, I do worry about what will happen when they do. Yeah, men are coming. Yeah. Um, why do you think the phone call was, was shown with that line blinking? I think it's the same line that always goes through to the sheriff's department. Yeah. Um, sorry, it, well, well, it goes to the Truman, who uh, um, who's in charge at that time. Yeah. I don't know. I think, was it was it some kind of thematic connection to the fact that the next thing you see is Andy getting Lucy to stand in a certain place? It could be. I do wonder if it's related to Harry mm. in some way. Um, I don't know. But there's something, there's something about showing that phone call. I mean, it does link to Lucy because obviously she would receive the call and pass it through, but she would pass it through to that phone and that phone would be picked up by a Truman. Mm. Um, so how that works, I don't really know. Um, and yet, like, a, well, there's so many bits in this. Um, another thing I think is cool is it's another example of how they've seamless, seamlessly inserted footage from the original show and Fire Walk With Me in mm. The Return. It's really wonderful to see this. I mean, we have it earlier when we see, obviously, the Fire Walk With Me bits. Um, but even when they've used footage from the original series, it's wonderful how seamlessly it fits in without looking dated or strange or anything. It almost makes it look weirder that you're seeing original Cooper in those. Yeah. And you know what Cooper is like now. And it shows the passage of time and how we shouldn't be expecting um, anything that that <laughs> is uh, directly linked to the original series. And also when they reappear and they're back at Jack Rabbit's purse again and they can't remember what happened, is it a bit like, you know, when Briggs gets taken up in that kind of flash of light? Yeah, where there's smoke and everything as well, which is very similar to this. Yeah, yeah. and he's gone for a while and then suddenly he reappears, but he's back at home and he's in the kind of old-timey airman's outfit. Hmm. But he's basically teleported somewhere else. Yeah. And when all of them return, they've all kind of teleported back to Jack Rabbit's palace again. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's true. It, it, it's odd that that's the site they uh, they return to. Um, so maybe you do get thrown in weird directions when you emerge from these places. Do you think Jerry's still in the woods? I don't know. I mean, we thought for ages that they might meet him, but. They no, still might. On, on day two, they might. They still might, because there is another thing that is going to happen at 2.53 Yeah. the next day. Um, I'm not sure where Jerry's adventure fits into the timeline. Um, I, I like to think that, you know, he suddenly found in the woods somewhere screaming about his foot mm. still. <laughs> um, and it's the least strange thing they encounter in the woods <laughs> during that trip. Yeah. I think like like one other point. Um, I know we're going on about this a lot, but the fireman thing I think is interesting. So I'm not sure how the terminology works, but it's interesting that they chose fireman in particular because although um, the obvious interpretation is the fireman is somebody who puts out fires, and that's why you can imagine that you would that the giant is really a force for good who's trying to stop the fire and you know and we know there's black fire that's going to be involved um later on in fahrenheit 451 the firemen aren't good they're the ones mm. who start fires because mm. they're the ones who, who go around burning all the books and i think that somebody like mark frost especially who likes putting in literary references 
might have done it deliberately to keep the ambiguity going about whether the fireman is truly on the side of good or bad because he could have called him something else. I mean, I hear, so in the UK, you have Fireman Sam, <laughs> who's good. Yes. He's not evil. He's not even ambiguous. No, he's the hero next door. He's the hero next door. Um, but I thought it was interesting that they chose the fireman for that. Um, yeah, because the, the secondary interpretation of that is the man of fire. Yeah. Rather than, yeah. So there could be some big bigger twist happening, or it could go back to the original idea that was... The giant is kind of not playing both sides, but like a watcher over the whole situation. And maybe he's trying to guide all the elements of this war between the, the white and the black lodgers. If that's um, exactly what's happening. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but it is nice because this is a strange episode in that we're watching Twin Peaks. And in this same episode, it's clear that. Gordon Cole is watching Final Walk with me mm. and Andy is watching Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really odd. Yeah, and in fact, at one point he's watching the thing that appeared in a glass box. Yeah. That other people were already watching. Yeah. Oh, man. So it's interesting because this idea of who's watching the box, mm. the fact that that has now been seen by somebody else is really cool because... Andy has a lot of information in his head right now. Um, and I think all these things might become important in the last few hours because uh, it was interesting that Coop always made time for Andy. Yeah. He always let him explain stuff to him. And uh, although he got frustrated a little bit with him, I think there will be a reason why Coop has to come back at least a few minutes before the end of the return because <laughs> he will want to have some idea of what's going on from Andy or Andy will at least try and discuss this stuff with everyone else it's interesting that they chose Andy and not Hawk Hawk would have been the obvious choice um, yeah or even if, if Bobby had been set up to be the person who goes up by Major Briggs yeah you know, maybe he maybe he had thought that his son might be the one to go there yeah but it's strange also that Andy's involved in this because he hasn't been involved in any of the any of the discussions thus far about Jack Rabbit's palace so why they choose him is interesting you know, I wonder if there's a missing part of the timeline we're not seeing where maybe uh, the log lady calls him up and says, take Andy, <laughs> you know. So now Andy has taken Nido down to the cells, primarily to protect her, um, because they figure that she'll be safe down there. And Lucy has fetched some PJs and a dressing gown from her locker. And she says, it's been in my locker since that night where that dog got lost in here. <laughs> And it just gives me the image of, you know, some long lost episode of Twin Peaks where a dog gets loose in the sheriff's <laughs> department and Andy and Lucy decide that they're going to spend the night there to try and find the dog because they're such lowly people. Um, and then she says to Andy, do you remember that night? And he says, yes, I do. And, he, and it's it's really sweet. But also it's another act of remembering. Yeah. Where he remembers what happens. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, like especially after the previous scene has essentially ended with Hawk saying, I don't remember a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Chad's down there. And there's also this drunk guy in a cell who is bleeding. Something weird has happened to his cheeks. He's bleeding from his nose and mouth. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah and, and, yeah. and his face is kind of ulcerated and weird. I mean, he's not in a good shape. And it's it's odd because you shouldn't, you know, he might be a drunk who's been left there. Um but it's odd that they've left him there, given he's such that he given that he's in such a poor physical state yeah. as well. But 
I don't think that either Andy or Lucy acknowledge the drunk's presence in any way. Yeah. They don't look at him. They don't respond to anything that he says. It's as if to them he's not there. Yeah. But Chad uh, can see him. Chad can see him and Nido can hear him. Yeah. Because so he starts repeating the last thing that anyone says, just kind of like Dougie did. Yeah, yeah. And so when Chad shouts at him, he's like shouting the last few words back. But then when Nido is communicating um, in the way that she does, he starts doing that back as yeah. well. So obviously she can hear him and Chad can both hear and see him. But I don't understand why Lucy and Andy didn't acknowledge that he was even there. Yeah, that is a bit weird. Um, it's very, it's a very strange and unsettling scene. I mean, I think the obvious parallel is to Mike, Bobby and James when they were in prison back in the original Twin Peaks. But I think what's interesting is instead of barking, you have this weird chirpy sound. And it does sound a little bit like they're making monkey-like sounds. Mm. And I think that immediately made me again think of Fire Walk With Me and the monkey that says judy um mm. as well because there is obviously a um well it's it was discussed i think uh during the making of fire walk with me that judy might end up being josie's sister and there's some people have thought that maybe nido is in some way linked to josie although i don't really see anything you know particularly obvious that points in that direction so there's something funny going on about all these different things um but it was just weird that they start doing this and you get the sense that it's just not you know it's probably not good for even chad to be kept down there whilst <laughs> this is happening it's a bad situation when you're feeling sorry for chad <laughs> um so uh is that billy discuss we'll come to that at the end <laughs> i think it is um, I think the it's such a clear reference to bleeding from the nose and mouth, um, especially in light of what's said in the roadhouse at the end of the episode. Um, I really think it is. Mm. But how that fits in with what Audrey is discussing, I do not know. No. And there's also that weird comment that Chad makes where he says it's like a nut house. Yeah, which here. is what they say later on as well. Yeah. Um, in the roadhouse. So yeah, I think I think it's meant to be. Um. But I think the confusing aspect comes from Audrey's description of events. That's what makes things a bit odd. And maybe it sheds more light on what Audrey's talking about than it does on who this character is. Yeah. So now we're back at the Great Northern. It's evening. And James and Freddie Sykes are sitting at the back. And they're both security guards at the hotel. Yeah, we last saw Freddie back in the end of part two. Yeah. When we, he, well, he curiously was hanging out with James being introduced to the roadhouse mm. and he had that strange green glove on that everyone's been wondering about yeah strange green glove and an overtly cockney accent <laughs> <laughs> um uh, first of all i thought this was really interesting that james is a security guard mm. because the two guys who were closest to laura yeah among her peers were bobby and james yeah and both of them have taken jobs where their primary role is to protect people yeah and I was thinking back to Bobby's reaction at Laura's funeral where he blames the town that everyone knew she was in trouble and nobody helped her. And you can see that beneath it all, he's really blaming himself. Yeah. Because he didn't help her. 
And you also see the way that James blames himself, particularly after Maddie dies and he has that confrontation with Donna before he takes off. And he says, we could have helped her, we could have helped her. And I wonder if this is in some way driven both of them to want to help people, protect people, go Mm. into something that involves that in Mm. their lives afterwards. Um, And it also made me think of, obviously after James takes off and you've got the whole Evelyn subplot, it, it kind of made more sense to me that he's so desperate to help someone that suddenly he, he sees someone who's right in front of him and appears to need his help mm. and he just kind of goes blindly into it yeah. because he's failed to help or in his mind he's failed to help other people when in, in reality there wasn't really anything that he could have done yeah. given that Bob was about yeah. um, but maybe he still blamed himself and I think following on from that it's interesting that both Bobby and I suspect James are going to be in some way involved in the final confrontation with Bob. Yeah. Uh, so then we get, uh, well, first we get told that it's James's birthday. Happy birthday, James. Happy we... birthday, James. <laughs> Sing that at the roadhouse. <laughs> and then we get the saga of the Green Glove. Yeah. The uh, East End saga of the Green Glove. <laughs> so I. I'll, I'll kind of go through it very quickly and then we'll discuss why he's so cockney. Mm. Um, so one night he was leaving the pub, he suddenly felt that he wanted to change his life, he was wasting his life, he wanted to help people. And he suddenly gets this thought that he's going to jump on this pile of boxes in this alleyway. And he obviously gets pulled up through Vortex and he meets the fireman and he gets really specific instructions from the fireman, mm. like more specific than other people seem to get. Um Go to the hardware store, buy the one green glove, put it on. And they're verbal. They're not in through these images in those portals. Yeah. yeah. You'll possess the power of a massive pile driver. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting that what he says next is that he then finds himself back in his room the next morning. Yeah. And it's like when Bill Hastings was talking about when he was in the zone and what happened to Ruth. Yeah. And suddenly he found himself back at home yeah. again. He thought it was a dream, but... It clearly did happen. Yeah. yeah. So he goes to the hardware store. Um, well, first we a, a kind of bizarre Beatles reference from a day in the life um, as a joke, um, which I guess was maybe kind of a nod to how strange this story seemed. Because yeah. a day in the life is these funny little stories that, that happen yeah. to people, isn't it? But they're all kind of surreal. Um, so he goes to the hardware store he wants to buy the glove. The clerk won't let him. He chases. Him. He buys it anyway. He chases him down the road, and he instinctively hits him, and then worries that he's broken his neck. His Gregory Peck. Yeah. <laughs> and then he remembers. At that point, he remembers. So he obviously hadn't remembered before yeah. that he was supposed to go to Twin Peaks, yeah. where he would find his. So again, destiny. memory coming in again. Yeah, but this whole thing is strange. The overly cockney nature of it is strange. <laughs> um, he does kind of feel like a character out of Charles Dickens. Yeah. And with his name is Sykes, because obviously one of Charles Dickens' yeah, most yeah. famous characters is Bill Sykes, but who is a psychopath. Yeah. So Sophie's not like him. Um, but some of the things that he says are not things that British people would say. Um, would you really call it the hardware store? Yeah, you'd call it the hardware shop or something like that, wouldn't you? Or convenience store. <laughs> or convenience store, yeah. Um, 
and I, I've, I can't remember anyone outside of a TV show in, in Britain referring to someone working at a shop as a clerk. Yeah, but I think what's happened is they've got this actor, this guy called Jake Wardle, who is known for doing accents from all over the world, really. I think it started off with the UK, but now he does sort of the whole world. I think they, they've written some dialogue that they felt was useful uh, and they've got somebody who can do a Cockney accent. Now, I suppose the one positive thing here is they haven't got uh, a non-British actor doing a Cockney accent because that can end up, you know, Dick Van Dyke bad. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that they've chosen a Cockney accent at all mm. because it's very, very jarring and I think... I don't want to be too dismissive of it. Um, it's obvious when somebody is putting on an accent that their ability to act is diminished a little bit because they're focusing more on putting on a voice than they are putting on uh, an actual performance. So I think I can understand that Jake Wardle is really good as a voiceover actor, um, but it must be very distracting to have to use... Uh, that voice in this context. I mean, it's a nice quirk they've added in. I wonder if that's even in the script that he has to speak like a Cockney. Mm. Um, I mean, th there were times when it was so over the top. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of Park Life. Um, particularly the bit where he says, um, well, it's something like, oh, uh, where I come from, we call such a person, Jobsworth, who delight takes delight in um, being obstructive. I could, it, it's, it's like that's a missing line from Park Life. And I just went to chat, Park Life at the end of it. He also sounds a bit like Danny Dyer, <laughs> which is which is A, not a positive thing, <laughs> and B, it's the only time we're going to mention that name in our whole run of Twin Peaks episodes. Yeah, and it's a name that most of our listeners are going to think, uh, who is that man? <laughs> I know, but on who do you think you are? He's related to royalty. So, <laughs> it's just a mess. It was so, I mean, it's like he stepped out of the Queen Vic or something. It was yeah. it was just so bonkers and a very odd stylistic choice and, and not an entirely successful one. <laughs> no, but so the weird thing is, obviously in the original run, you had Dick Tremaine, right? Yeah. But the actor who played Dick Tremaine is Scottish, isn't he? Yeah. So he was putting on an accent, but he was putting on a very kind of RP English accent. He was doing a David Tennant. Yeah. yeah. Basically, he was putting on the kind of um slightly kind of upper class or or putting on an attempt to be upper class kind of um rp english accent um that is kind of understandable and and translates well mm. i guess internationally in terms of being able to follow it if you're going to go for a regional accent maybe they decided actually we want a regional accent we want someone who's just some just some guy maybe that's the point mm. is that he's just some random guy why you why not you yeah um that that he's he's just some random dude and maybe they wanted to make it international to make it seem like oh there are portals all over the world yeah um but maybe they felt that a cockney accent would be one that i don't know maybe international audiences would have an easier time following than say a mancunian accent but then why would you put the cockney rhyming slang in yeah, and and that again is is so strange because it, he uses it so many times in quick succession, and you just don't really hear people doing that in the wild, if you like. 
Um, I don't think that I've ever in my life actually heard anyone refer to money as beans. <laughs> Have you? I mean, you grew, you grew up in London. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's it's very strange. Um, I think it's a nice touch. I kind of hope we don't go down that road too much in the final few hours. Um, yeah, it's a it's a bit odd actually. Um, but I, but this whole glove thing is kind of a bit funky. At first, I was a bit thrown by the fact that oh, there's a vortex in London. I thought that'd be kind of cool to go and find that. Although I know they got in a lot of trouble when they gave the coordinates out for that person's house. Um, <laughs> and they had to take that down. So maybe vaguely referring to a vortex in London is probably safe enough. Yeah, there aren't too many alleyways in London, are there? <laughs> One or two. <laughs> With boxes in them. <laughs> There's a diagon alley. Um, but there, there are a few things that are kind of interesting. So firstly, you have um, the fact you can't take the glove off. Yeah. And that reminded me immediately of a razor head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how... Uh, the bandages on the baby are actually part of the baby and it starts getting sick when uh, that and they're cut and things like that so so that was the first thing that it was kind of uh, odd but they also this idea of the strength it has mm-hmm. so how do you think that's going to come into play it might, you know, it's clear that the giant has given him this power um why do you think he has you know this strength so he's given him super strength but only in his right hand yeah and it's on his right hand isn't it not his left hand yeah it's on his as, right hand as opposed so all, to where the hour ring goes yeah so all the evil stuff happens with the left hand yeah and the right hand is where the good stuff seems to be happening and also i remember that in the scene where the fireman meets andy and he kind of waves he waves with his right hand very yeah, notably he does uh so it's interesting that you know that's what you're supposed to do um but if it's a gardening glove then is it made of rubber? Because wouldn't that also be resistant to electricity? Mm, yeah, yeah, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, that's true. So I, th- I think he must fight someone. Mm. Um, I know there have been kind of theories going around on Twitter, like, is he going to arm wrestle Mr. C? Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe he's going to get into a fight with a woodsman. Maybe him and Nadine are going to tag team some woodsman in the end. You know what he could be about to do? He could be about to knock on the door when uh, when Cooper is waiting in uh in the purple Ooh. room you know oh but yeah so jumping ahead hmm. to when james is down in the furnace and it ends on that almost kind of shot of a door in the furnace that door really reminded me of the door that that someone is yeah. trying now, to bash down is there a portal on the other side do you think that goes to uh the purple zone hmm. and so when you've got uh freddie banging on it is cooper on the other side of that is that what's going to happen the next day hmm you know, something is something is going to happen. I think I think these events are going to start tying up. But I, you know, I'm not sure. But I think you're right. I think that door, um, it is it, it does look like a large, heavy metal door that was very similar to the one that uh, uh, Cooper was. Yeah, you know, he could see when he was in the room with the American girl, and she said, "Oh, mother is coming." Maybe that was all a distraction. You know, it might not be mother. It might be uh, it might be Freddie. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's all it's all a bit odd. But I, but I like that connection that maybe the banging on the door is going to be James maybe calling down Freddie, and then Freddie bang on the other side because maybe he hears on the other side that Cooper's inside or something. Um, yeah, who knows? The other thing that I, I literally was thinking about just now is the fact that you know when the sheriff's department arrived at Jack Rabbit's palace, yeah, and Bobby is explaining to them that he would go there with his dad. And his dad would tell him tall tales um, yep, when they yeah. were there. 
and this is a tall tale yeah, that someone yeah. is telling right here in the episode. I mean, we, we can presume that it actually happened because we know about the fireman. Yeah. And, um, we can see that his his right hand is incredibly strong, but it, but it is a, a tall tale that somebody tells yeah. someone else. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good spot. I think there's something going on here where reality is being warped a little bit um, uh, by things. Um, but also that, you know, two other points, I mean, I remember thinking about this, was uh, uh, to do with red so red says have you ever looked at your hand mm. and i wonder if that's you know hands always come up again and again and again but i think it's interesting that you know i'm wondering what's happened to red and i'm looking to see where he might factor into the story again and, yeah. and, and that that really rings a bell um the second thing was about the fact that when freddie goes to the airport he's already got a ticket yeah now freddie's been given a glove by the fireman do you think that some that the fireman has given, uh, you know, a billion dollars to somebody? <laughs> you know, is that what's going on? Is the billionaire the same? You know, is there somebody on earth who is doing these things? Yeah. So has, you know, you know, maybe there's a situation where the fireman has appeared to a billionaire, maybe, mm-hmm. and said, "You have to build this box." Yeah. Uh, or, or he has told somebody you know you have to buy a ticket for this person on this day and they will take it you know all these things could be happening yeah um and i think it's all to do with the influence of the fireman and what he's orchestrating yeah um so yeah i i don't know how it really fits but but something funky is uh is going on um and that hum as well we're back you know obviously we're back in the boiler room yeah and this is, seems to be the where the the sound of the hum is coming from i believe yeah which if you think of the other kind of similar sound that we had, which is when Briggs' little metal doodah hmm. was knocked open by Bobby, that was using vibration to open something that was otherwise jammed. Yeah. So is this a hum emanating that some something something is opening, something's being jarred open, yeah. even a portal is being yeah. jarred open under the Great Northern? Yeah. And I think it's going to take, you know... Uh, a fist with the power of a pile driver <laughs> to break it open and see what's happening. But that setting itself, I mean, it's very reminiscent of the scene uh, where Bob is in the hospital basement, you know, where he's uh, he's kind of standing there and he's he thinks he can hear Mike. You know, yeah. he's kind of... It's the part of the, that extended sequence of the dream, but it's also uh, the sequence that is in the original ending of the european pilot that has all those scenes uh glued on to the end it does feel like that bob sequence but i don't think it's going to be bob behind that door mm. i am thinking that it's going to be um freddie breaking it down and it's going to be uh and it's going to be uh cooper on the other side maybe mm-hmm. and that could be why there's another 253 but it wouldn't be the right location so maybe that's not true and then the the other thing that that door made me think of because it made me think of the door in the purple room is what American girl says when someone is knocking on the door, which is you'd better hurry. My mother's coming. And then the very next thing is that we cut to Sarah Palmer. Yeah. That's very true. And I think that's going to become very important. So do you think that when she says you better hurry, my mother is coming. So I always assumed that meant that mother was outside, Mm. but maybe it's not. Maybe mother is somewhere else. In that, uh, well, maybe mother is now in her world in some way, but she's not in, but maybe she doesn't actually mean that mother is banging at the door. 
which would fit with the fact that it's James and Freddy on the outside. So now we're at Elk's Point number nine bar, which is another new bar that we've had in the series so far. Oh, you had Max Vons and mm. this one. And uh, Sarah Palmer is out at night looking for a drink. And we were trying to decide whether this is something that happens after the loopy boxing match scene where she's clearly run out of vodka at home. Yeah. Or maybe after she has left the convenience store in a fluster and left all of her vodka behind. Yeah, which would also then mean that the sound coming from the kitchen almost certainly isn't anyone delivering things as we thought, and there is something in her house. Yeah. Um, And she still doesn't have any alcohol. Yeah. So this is a very dodgy-looking bar. Um, And I wonder if maybe she hasn't gone to the roadhouse because she wants to go somewhere where she's anonymous. Yeah. But she can just have a drink and people aren't pointing and saying oh that's that woman whose husband murdered her daughter all the time because it must be something that just follows you around especially yeah. in a small town where everyone knows you that's been the biggest thing that happened in that town um and she just can't get away from it so um she's presumably gone there in order to not be bothered by anyone but unfortunately she does get bothered by someone and i swear every woman who's ever walked into a bar has at some point in their life met that guy He's like a portal to douchebaggery that exists everywhere around the world. <laughs> it's a world of truck drivers. <laughs> it truly is a world of truck drivers. Um, yeah, so what the hell is going on inside Sarah? What is that thing? Yeah, I think it's it's odd because it turns a scene which is, like you say, a, a commentary on the sexual harassment which takes place in bars uh, to being perhaps even more disturbing in only the way that Twin Peaks can take <laughs> something into a more disturbing place Yeah. by revealing that Sarah or this version of her and I don't know how it really works has that same bizarre power that Laura in the Red Room had which was to remove her face and reveal what's inside. Mm. Now, whereas Laura was uh, a bright white light inside, Sarah inside is black. Yeah. Now, this goes back to the vortex, as you were mentioning as well. So when Cole saw the buckhorn vortex, yeah, it was black yeah. inside. And then when uh, the Jackrabbit's Palace crew have gone there and seen the vortex it was white inside yeah so there is a difference in what's uh what these two colors represent i mean it could be very simple it could just be black and white the black and the white lodges that thing inside i have no idea i mean is it is it the cock frog creature inside her is it i mean so i i kind of have a problem with that i don't think it i don't think that girl we saw back in 1956 was necessarily sarah but I cannot rule out that there were other bugs that did other things. Yeah. Because at first it does some kind of weird... Is it like a spitting thing? Was it its tongue coming out? Yeah. It almost acts like electricity sparking. Yeah. Um, and then you see the hand floating with the charred ring finger. Yeah. The, the, spiritual, the spiritual finger or spiritual mound that uh, um, Cole pointed out. Yeah. Yeah. And then this 
horrible smile just floating around inside. That is very weird. It's it's like that, I think, is, you know, straight up Lynchian imagery. It's from his <laughs> art. It's it's from his mind. Um, but it's just so freaky that. Um, do you think that the teeth belong to somebody we know or are they just or is it just a weird smile? I don't know. I think I think if it does belong to someone we know, we must find out about it. Yeah. Um, is I mean, it Laura? Well, Laura does have a doppelganger. Yeah. Um, who we met in the Red Room. Yeah. Um, so, but a doppelganger wouldn't necessarily be a inhabiting spirit. Yeah. Um, but do you I, think it could relate to? Leland's find Laura is Laura in in Sarah she could be or or maybe like Cooper she's fractured somehow yeah um and there is a there is a good and a bad who are kind of out there in the world but instead of physically out there in the world they are inhabiting someone somehow out there in the world um when she bites the dude's neck off she moves so fast that it's it's like the mother experiment killing the couple in New York. Yeah. Because um, she, she manages to bite his neck off and get absolutely no blood on her face whatsoever. Which is also very strange. Because um, there'd be a lot of spray yeah. <laughs> coming off in that situation. But the the thing I'm not sure about is, um, I whatever this is, I don't think it's in control all the time. I think that Sarah knows it's in there. Because when she's trying to get the guy to leave, and she's... You know, she twice she tries to get him to go away, and the second time, she seems just all just kind of weary, like she knows what's going to happen if he yeah. doesn't. She knows that if he doesn't go, this thing is going to take over, and something really bad is going to happen. Yeah. And then when he falls on the ground, and for a moment she screams, it's as if she didn't know that she had done it. Yeah. Um, and then the thing seems to take back over again when talking to the the bartender and he gets completely creeped out yeah. and is able to take a hint a lot better than the other guy to uh, get away from her as fast as possible. I think it's it's a very odd scene because it's truly horrific, but it's horrific for both reasons. Mm. You know, the first half of that sequence, you have this, you know, Leo-style truck driver mm. who is... He's a bit like... Um, you know, one of those characters in the world of Twin Peaks who is uh, evil for the simple reason that he is an evil person. Yeah. There's nothing in him. There's no lodge spirit inside him driving him to what he does. This is, you know, this is truly the evil that men do. Yeah. He's almost like who Leo would have grown up to be if he hadn't been left in the woods with the spiders. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot <laughs> about that, yeah. Um, but the other horror of it is... Um, I think not necessarily what Sarah does, although that is kind of a very visceral horror that we're seeing. It's the fact that you realise how tortured she must be Mm. and how she must have been for the last 25 years. Yeah. I think there's tremendous tragedy always with this, but to see Sarah potentially dealing with this um, you know, Sarah was not an inherently bad person at all. Mm. She seems to have been given this gift to be able to be linked with the lodgers in some way. She can certainly receive messages from them. And 
I think having already had the trauma of what's happened to Laura and Leland, to know now that she is potentially the epicenter for the evil in Twin Peaks, and the, it's unclear how long it's been around inside her, um, I think it's extremely sad to see that. She's so frail and you kind of wish you could have some peace and it's clear that's not happening. But I do feel that that will be resolved in some way, either through the positive effect of Laura or Cooper. Mm. And one sort of you know minor point, I don't even know if this is even relevant, but did you not think that because they have those uh, neon light signs, that the picture of the elk on Elk's Bar looks an awful lot like the drawing that Gordon Cole did? When he was in the hotel room and he had that picture of an elk with a hand pointing at it. Yeah, the, the kind of funny with the with the antlers and the hand reaching out to it. Yeah, yeah it kind of does. Mm. Yeah. So then we're back in the roadhouse again. And sitting in this week's booth of mystery is uh, Megan and Sophie. They start, they're talking about Megan taking drugs, I think, because she says that she's getting high in her own room. Sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. Yeah. And uh, Sophie says, don't go to that nut place. Yeah. It's totally sparkle, isn't it? It's totally sparkle. Yeah. Unless, in a bizarre mood, they're talking about the place where Freddie Sykes gets his walnuts from. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a tangent that no one could see coming. (laughs) And uh, apparently, uh, Megan has stolen Paula's sweater. Who's Paula? Who are any of these people (laughs) No more people. No more people. I do hope that Frank Truman gets the right sandwich. (laughs) And then uh, the big question, have you seen Billy? And suddenly we think, wow, this is actually relevant to something. Yeah. So we have this. So initially we have the scene where Bing comes into the double R and says they don't seen Billy. We now have Audrey talking to Charlie about Billy who's gone missing. Yeah. We have Sophie and Megan talking about the missing Billy. And we also have uh, the guy, the drunk, in the Twin Peaks uh, jail cell who is bleeding from his nose and mouth. Yeah. And Megan tells the story about how the last time she saw Billy, um, she was at home with her mother and she can't remember if her uncle is there. And Billy jumps over a fence and comes sort of crashing through into the kitchen, bleeding from his nose and mouth, and hangs his head over the sink and there's his blood gushing out, then looks at them weirdly and then runs off again. Yeah. But the the way that Megan asks this is really weird um, because it's odd that she's asking him, uh, have you seen Billy? But then she says, I heard you were the last person to see Billy. Yeah. Which is it's just kind of a weird thing to say. There's something odd about Megan in this. Because she's kind of almost starting off as her friend. Mm-hmm. And kind of asking questions. But the music also rumbles a little bit as well. It's almost like she's trying to get the information. Yeah, it, it's, it's like she's not really who she is. Or, yeah. um... or she's David Lynch's wife. Yeah. <laughs> And then we find out that her mum's name is Tina, yep. uh, who is the Tina that Audrey was getting Charlie to call, and that she thinks that her mum had a thing with Billy, which could explain why Audrey hates Tina. Yes, yeah, so, no, I think in that scene, 
Audrey suggests directly to Charlie that Tina was sleeping with Billy. Yeah. And she was sleeping with Billy as well. Yeah. And then she says that afterwards they cleared up the blood and again she can't remember if her uncle was there. And yeah. It's weird that we keep getting these references to uncles. Yeah. Um, so obviously going kind of all the way back to the beginning, you've got Leland who is Maddie's uncle. If I walk with me, you've got Lil's mime where the uncle is missing from the the what Cole says about... She's my mother's sister's girl. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we've got the puke zombie girl who's on her way to see her uncle who she hasn't seen in a very long while. What is happening? <laughs> we've been saying that a lot lately. <laughs> we were saying that all over Helsinki over the last week with our friends. Everyone would just suddenly start quoting that scene. Out of, I don't know what that scene of all the scenes. We would just start, start, yeah. Probably confuse a lot of Finns mm. if they weren't watching Twin Peaks. Um, yeah, so she... They they kind of look perturbed and then and then the music starts up on stage, uh, which is uh, Lissy this time, and uh, there you go, starring Carl McLaughlin for all of about ten seconds in this this one. Yeah, and half of his head, <laughs> starring Carl McLaughlin's chin. <laughs> Carl McLaughlin's chin, and some old footage that we had of him from Firewalk with Me. Getting bonkers, yeah. Um, and a and a still image of him separating into two people. Um. Which again makes me think that next week, Las Vegas time, and, <laughs> and Dougie Jones everywhere. We should have pre-recorded a next week Las Vegas time and just <laughs> just played that at the end of every episode for the last few weeks because <laughs> we're not we're not doing too well on predicting when we're going to go back to some of these events. Um, yeah, so I mean, going back to the scene, how do you think it all ties up with? Uh, Audrey's recollections of what's going on. I mean, I, I'm getting a sense that that's that sequence of events that Audrey and Charlie are involved in is going to become important, but I still think it's going to be a subplot to what's happening. Yeah, I don't know if Billy is the dude in the jail cell. I mean, obviously the imagery of him bleeding is there, but the fact that I still think that Andy and Lucy didn't see him. You know how that scene in the diner where Bobby and Shelley are trying to sort of console Becky yeah. after she just shot up Gersten's apartment. Yeah. And you said that you thought that it was possible that Bobby and or Becky hadn't actually seen Red. Yes. At the yeah. window. I still think that. So is there now if that is Billy, um has he been logified to the point where not everyone can actually see him? It could be. There's or he's interacted with Red, mm. and Red has performed some magic trick, and yeah, um, there's something weird. And I, I, you know, maybe Red has the power to make things disappear. I don't know, but yeah, it's it's very confusing because I don't think everything that Audrey's saying is wrong anymore. Um, but it does seem a bit strange. I mean, the one thing that I did think about certainly when you know we posted that that picture of the giant talking to Cooper. You know, saying remember all these different names yeah. but, you know, they do all seem like high school names yeah and these are all kids talking yeah and i i don't know what the link is but it does remind me a little bit of uh nadine when she reverted back to her high school self but mm. she was still you know physically she was her actual age of the mid-30s but in her mind she was 
um, back in high school. And it, do you think something like that could be happening in some bizarre way where Audrey is somehow somehow thinking about roadhouse events from when she was younger? Yeah, maybe. Maybe these things that are... Maybe not all of the things that we see at the roadhouse are even happening in the year that everything else was happening. Because these odd scenes, um, like today's and the previous one where a billion different names came out, there's nothing else to connect them to now. Yeah. There are no common threads apart from Audrey. Yeah. Um, And I still think there's something not right about what's going on with Audrey and yeah. her interactions. It's not entirely real, I think. Um, that maybe they are just from a completely different time. I mean, the roadhouse has always looked like the roadhouse. Yeah. So how would you know if you were looking at the roadhouse today or five years ago or 25 years ago? It looks like the same place. Because she could be recalling a Billy that she knew a long time ago, mm. which is why there's confusion when she's relating this to Charlie about all these different names that just seem like you know high school friends and actually the situation seems like a pretty um immature high school situation as well which (laughs) is odd um so it's almost like her mind is trying to process these events but that would also then mean that maybe the Billy she remembers from long ago is not the same as the Billy who we have now Mm. um I don't know what it all means. You know, the, you know, they're just random, random connections at the moment. But you know, something will, I think, start to coalesce in this plotline that becomes fundamental. But I don't think it's going to be a particularly happy ending for Audrey in this. So that's it for our roundup of what happened in part 14 of twin peaks the return thank you for listening gosh it you know what it, it seems like so long ago that we were joking about you know that funny thing in the las vegas fbi office being the most peaksy moment in a totally <laughs> peaksy episode there's so much happened in this episode yeah it was just completely off the charts and with four hours left to go are we going to have another four hours of just completely what the hell moments I think we're going to have another two hours of what the hell moments, but then the finale is going to be completely bonkers. <laughs> I, you know, I think it could um, it could just spin off into into a completely bizarre uh, orbit around events. I think that I actually am starting to think that Cooper will be back in time for that two hour finale. Mm. Um, so I don't think we're going to necessarily get him back in part fifteen, but maybe in part sixteen something will happen, uh, and certainly. Well, we've discussed it before, but there are scenes in those original trailers which do suggest that good Cooper does at least return in the return. Yeah. Um, but I think the next thing that's going to happen is going to be something to do with the uh, resolution of events in Las Vegas. Yeah. But I still think that we haven't really gotten to the bottom of the mystery of, you know, the glass box and how that's going to work. Although it's interesting that this episode brought that to the fore again by revealing... Uh, that shot of the mother from the box even if we never go back to that Mm. it's clear that that strand will be continued in some way Um, the same thing I think is going to be true of um, what's really happening with the events in Las Vegas Uh, I think that's going to be resolved 
but I think ultimately that's going to be resolved in such a way that you know Sinclair was uh, Sinclair will get his comeuppance and all these things will take place. But the objective will be for Cole and the gang to get there and maybe get uh, him out. But how do you think that um, the Diane situation is going to play out? I think that maybe not the next episode, maybe the one after, we're going to get a scene with Diane and Janie Yee. Yeah. And we are basically going to get the Naomi Watts, Laura Dern face-off. And it's yeah. going to be epic. It's going to be absolutely epic. And I cannot wait for that to happen. And I hope it does happen. Yeah. I mean, I think it is going to be true that they are half-sisters. Because it's easy for anyone to check, you know. Um, unless the Fuscos are involved, in which case they're like, this Diane person claims they're a half-sister of Janie Yee. <laughs> scrunches it up and throws it in the bin um, <laughs> but yeah I think it's it's an odd turn of events but I like what you said earlier in the episode about um, there being a link between Diane being used as a um, a component of uh, Dale Cooper's life to engineer a way to introduce uh, Dougie into the real world by Mr. C yeah I, I I I do think that we're being led to suspect Diane in such a way that makes me think that she isn't actually bad. Um, that she is up to something and keeping it a secret, definitely. But that there will be a good reason for what she's doing. And I d- I don't know is it is it Jeffries is it not Jeffries or whoever it is that's that's pretending to be Jeffries, um, or who it might be. But I just can't. I don't think that she'll turn out to be willingly working with Mr. C. Yeah. Um, not after everything that's happened. I, I think there will be an epic reunion with Janie E because she obviously hasn't seen her since she got married to yeah. Dougie. Um, I think that, yeah, it, I mean, Hutch and Chantel are still on their way to Las Vegas. Yeah. So there's going to be some kind of confrontation there. Um, we said last time that we were worried about the fact that Bushnell and Dougie now have the same car courtesy of the Mitchum brothers which has the potential for hitman uh, mix-ups switcheroos yeah uh Bushnell's still got to punch someone um it, it's funny that we've had this kind of repetitive thing of Bushnell being a boxer and kind of clenching his fist and stuff and now we've got Freddy who with can his, yeah with his glove yeah who can kill people with one punch uh so something's got to happen there but I think um if anything is left to happen with the Sinclair storyline, it's going to be with Mr. Todd and the corrupt cops. Yeah. If indeed we ever see them again, um, we might just hear that they've been arrested or something like that. Because they've got an awful lot still to do. And and where's Mr. C, who is now the leader of that bizarre crime gang who uh, you can take over if you can arm wrestle someone? Mm. Um there was still something very weird and almost kind of fairy tale like about that whole thing um, and, and that whole episode. But I think he'll probably just be going solo again. But what potentially is going to connect him with Richard Horn, who was there, that I don't know. Yeah. And going back to what you were just saying, I just had this bizarre vision of, a, of another reboot of Rocky, <laughs> but featuring um, a young Freddie Sykes as the Rocky kind of character and then Bushnell as the Mickey <laughs> who's kind of like his trainer and is teaching him to punch people or at least punch through doors um, that'd be kind of funny uh, so I've had one final thought as well which is 
all this stuff that we've seen so far in this episode about people remembering or not remembering. So Cole and Albert and their fuzzy memories around when Philip Jeffries visited the office. Truman and Hawk and Bobby not really remembering what happened at Jack mm. Rabbit's Palace. Um, all, all this kind of thing. And I, I keep going back to whatever has gone on with Annie and the fact that everyone seems to have forgotten her, that you had that one oblique reference to that she was that girl who went into that place. And the fact that even after she went in, people seemed to forget her. Like, Norma should have been worried about her sister, yeah. but she just seemed to forget her. If there is something lodgy about Annie, or not necessarily her personally, but about what happened to her, has that itself affected everyone's memory? Is that why she's not in the secret history? Rather than be erased, has she just been forgotten about? Or she's only kind of vaguely remembered and the memories aren't full? Yeah, I would, I mean, I would go even further than that and wonder whether that's the basis of what's going on in the secret history. Uh, given that it's written by Major Briggs, the archivist, um, does it in fact mean that in the 25 years of him bouncing around through time and lodge and doing all kinds of crazy things he has actually forgotten or confused certain events and so what he's documented reflects you know the the memories of somebody who has put something together um but uh after they've had their memories heavily affected by the amount of interdimensional travel that they've been doing between you know the real world and the lodgers Oh, and one and one aside, if I can drop this in, I've just yeah. realised where the Freddy thing comes from. Oh yeah. So, well, I, well, I don't know for a fact, but I'm just wondering. So, uh, there are two very important Freddies in David Lynch's world. One was Freddy Francis, who was his uh, cinematographer uh, on a lot of his early films. Um, but also there was Freddy Jones. Freddy Jones, I think. Because uh, I remember if you l watch the making of Inland Empire, mm -hmm. Freddie Jones was the... He appeared in a couple of his films, I think, but he was the guy who's most notable for being the owner of the sideshow and the Elephant Man. Mm. And he was a guy who was originally meant to be playing the character that Harry Dean Stanton played in Inland Empire. That kind of retired movie director or kind of lovey producer kind of thing who was around. So... Mm. um yeah, I do wonder if that was what was going on. Are either of them British then? Both of them are. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's uh, it. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I think. But, you know, I was racking my brains to think about uh, why that could have happened. But they weren't Cockney, I don't think. Although they're, although at least Freddie Jones was a um, a character actor. So he might have uh, put on a, a Cockney accent. <laughs> uh, one or two. I just hope that there's, there's going to be some, you know, uh, some more Cockney in this whole, uh, this whole show. <laughs> It'd be quite amusing uh, if the show became Get Cooper. That's not going to be the end theme. Yeah, either that or uh, there'll be a scene in Part 15 where he'll get really screwed up and then Mr. C rocks up in Twin Peaks and says something like, My name is Mr. C and I am Dale Cooper's doppelganger. And not a lot of people know that. <laughs> that would imply that uh, the C in Mr. C is Mr. Kane. <laughs> Shock twist. Awesome cameo, though. <laughs> um, but yes, let's wrap this up.
Yes. It's been way too long. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening, as always. If you have a chance, listen, uh, listen to our Slices of Pie episodes, which went up at the weekend. Um, as always, follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, visit our website. And if you're feeling generous, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Mm. Yeah, so thank you for listening. Um, next week, we'll be back on the same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> Once we're back watching at 3am uh, on a Monday again. So until then, goodbye. Shut it. <laughs>